How many of you uh, in this room this morning came to faith in Christ at a vacation Bible school? Anybody? You, you were saved at a VBS. Got a few, got a few. How many of you were impacted by a vacation Bible school? You, were, you still remember a vacation? Yeah, look at that. When you say that, you still remember that vacation Bible school. You rem- I've heard stories and stories over the years uh, of, of uh, dedicated servants of God picking up kids and bringing them to vacation Bible school, of, of teaching and serving in VBS, of growing up coming to VBS. Did you know that the seed for Vacation Bible School goes all the way back to 1898. Uh, Mrs. Walker Hawes, a resident of West Virginia, and her husband, who was a doctor, moved to New York City so that he could participate in medical missions as a practicing physician in New York City. And when they arrived and started his practice, one of the things that Mrs. Hawes noticed was that a lot of the children who were his patients were coming in for treatment due to injuries they had received playing on the streets of New York City. During the daytime with nothing else to do, they were getting into trouble or they were getting hurt on the streets of New York City. So she prayed about it and she came to the the conclusion that it might be an opportunity to get them plugged into something better, more healthy for, for for the kids as well as teaching them the Bible. So she started what she called a a Bible school, a daytime Bible school. And to have this and to attract the kids in the community, she rented a beer hall on the east side of New York City and did that for two years. And it started doing well. It was growing. Kids were, were being involved. They were excited about coming. And her pastor approached her and said, this really should be in a church. So how about we bring it to our church and have it there? So in 1901, it was moved to uh, the church, and it immediately declined in attendance. And, And she figured out why. It was because the children who were coming were not really comfortable coming to a church. Or if they were, they would have already been coming to a church. So now she didn't go back to the beer hall, but what she did is she rented space around that same area, and then it continued to thrive and to grow, and she was a descendant of, of excuse me, she was related to a very famous Baptist, Southern Baptist, John Broadus. She was related to him. She was uh, steeped in Baptist life, and she had that a Baptist evangelistic and missions heart. And soon she uh, connected with the Baptist ministry and missions there in New York, and they caught fire with the idea, and that's how it became what we call Vacation Bible School. And since then, it has flourished and grown because Southern Baptists have a vision for Vacation Bible School being evangelistic, reaching kids and their families for Christ. That's what it's always been. Uh, if you're familiar with Vacation Bible School, you know we do a pledge to the Bible as part of our pledges, a pledge to the, uh, to the flag, a pledge to the Christian flag, and a pledge to the Bible. The pledge to the Bible was written by a Southern Baptist leader specifically for Vacation Bible School. We are wrapped up in, we are embedded in, we are invested in Vacation Bible School, and it's because of Southern Baptist and our vision for VBS being an evangelistic arm of the church, that it has grown and thousands of churches participate in vacation Bible schools across the nation and across the world. Remember that when you come tonight. 
that it is part of the evangelistic arm of our church. We firmly believe in it. And I think in our culture now more than ever, we need to be investing in teaching children and bringing kids and their families to faith in Christ and growing them in faith in Christ. This morning, we're going to uh, look into the theme verse and the Bible passage. Every year at Vacation Bible School, we have a theme verse and a Bible passage, and this year it comes from Psalm 25. So if you have your Bible, pick it up and find Psalm 25. Psalm 25. Uh, while you're looking there, let me mention something to you, by the way. Uh, you'll know if you've been at First Baptist a while, you've noticed we've been out of our series in First Peter for a few Sundays. <clears throat> we will return to uh, the book of First Peter on July 16th. So don't miss that. Tuck that away. We'll pick up with First Peter chapter 2 at that time. Psalm 25 is written by King David, who is well known for writing worship songs, which we have in our Bible as the Psalms. Uh, and Psalm 25 is unique in that it is an acrostic. That means that in the Hebrew Bible, and that each letter of the Hebrew alphabet begins one of the stanzas and verses of Psalm 25. And now to uh, kind of grasp the brilliance and insight and God's inspiration in this, go home today, take the English alphabet, and try to write a poem using with the first letter of each stanza and phrase starting with a letter from the English alphabet. And when you're done doing that, then put it to music and sing it. Well, that's what David does here. It, he uses the Hebrew alphabet as an acrostic. We don't get that when we translate it from Hebrew to English, but it's just an interesting fact of the way David's mind thinks and the brilliance and the inspiration of God. And Psalm 25 is a prayer to know and to do God's will. To know and to do God's will. The theme for our Vacation Bible School is that following Jesus changes everything. When we follow Jesus, it, it changes the game. Uh, because it, it's not so much knowing what to do that matters, it's, it's who you know and who you follow that matters. That's what the Bible teaches. A lot of times you can know the right thing to do, and, and that's good that you know the right thing to do. But it's more important that you follow the one who knows you. He knows your path and your purpose and life, and he will keep you on that path and on that purpose. And that's what King David is praying in Psalm 25. That's what he is asking for. He's asking for God to guide him, but he's also saying, God, I want to know your will for me. It's not about having a set of rules. It's not about checking, all, checking the boxes. Uh, how do I do this? Or, or 10, 10 ways to, uh, to be a better Christian or, 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 or 10 ways for the Bible teaches about time management. That's not what he's asking. He's not even asking specifically how to make a specific decision. He is saying in his prayer, as we'll read it, he is asking God for guidance to please God, to deepen his relationship with God, because knowing God, he will know the way. He will know what God wants him to do. It's not what you do that matters as much as who you follow. And who you follow will determine what you do. David knows that. The Bible teaches it frequently and often. So remember that this morning and remember the theme of Vacation Bible School this year. Following Jesus changes the game. It changes 
everything. Psalm 25 in verse 1. Now we're going to pick up at verse 4 in just a minute. And verse 4 is our vacation Bible school verse. Uh, but I want to mention verse 1 because you'll notice how it starts. Lord, I appeal to you. David cries out to God in prayer. Now look at verse 4. This is what he appeals. This is what he wants. This is what he prays. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful, faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, O Lord. Last Sunday, I pulled out of my driveway, as I typically do, about 7.25 in the morning, immediately entered that bog, uh, smog, smoke, fog, whatever that was. The, the uh, uh, visibility was almost nothing. I could barely see the front of my truck. I had the lights on, and you would never know it. I have fog lights on the truck. You would never know it. So I crept out of my neighborhood, out to 127, to make my way to uh, Main Street and eventually to the church, uh, all the while you know, kind of anxious about not being able to see other cars or other traffic, not really knowing if anyone was behind me or worse in front of me as I was, as I was driving along. So I made my way out of the neighborhood. I went down to Main Street. Now, uh, on the way to the church from my house, I have to go through four stoplights, four intersections that have stoplights. The first one I came to on 127, right at the middle school, going down to, to Main Street Shalhoub, was pretty easy to see. But that was when I realized right away that uh, this was the hardest part of the journey. Because in order to see that small round light through the smog, bog, fog, I don't really know what to call it. It was bad. To see it, I had to actually get all the way to the intersection and be looking up. And thankfully, that first light was green. So I just glided through and I went down the main street to the stop sign. And I looked left and didn't see any headlights coming my way. So I turned right. And then, then I reached the next stoplight and had to get all the way up into the intersection just about to see it just barely shining through the thickness and, and it was green and so I continued on. Now it was also pretty evident quickly that the only way for me to know where I was was knowing the terrain, what was beside me along the way. I could not see the lanes, I could not see in front of me, I could not see behind me, I really couldn't see anything, I just knew what was beside me when I reached what was beside me. So that's how I knew where I was and how I was approaching, and when I was approaching the next intersection, thankfully, those first two lights were green. And then I came to the intersection down here, Main Street and Smith Avenue. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the bigger the intersection, the farther the stoplight is. And I was approaching the intersection, creeping slowly, coming to it, and saw nothing, nothing through the fog. Had no idea at this point if the light was green or red. And I'm looking at the sides to tell how close I am to the intersection. Look at the terrain right here, and I finally get up to it, and just barely through the thickness I see red. And stopped, and just as I did, four vehicles came through the intersection, 
slowly creeping along, one behind the other, headlights on. And because of that thick bog, as soon as they were gone, I didn't see them again. And I saw the light turn green, and I went on through the intersection, and through the next one at Walmart. Then I got here to the driveway of the church and had no idea where the driveway was. Could not see the driveway. Could not see our sign. What you can see from Bald Head Island at night. <laughs> Had no idea if I was at the church or not, except for the fact that I knew the terrain beside me. So when I came alongside the property right there that's on the market, that used to be a long and sod business, I knew I was there. I, I got over in the turn lane. What I didn't know is if anybody was coming the other direction, didn't see any headlights, couldn't see it through the thickness, decided I would go ahead and turn and did and was safe and made it safely to the church that morning. Following Jesus is a game changer. Here's why. You get to know him. That's like getting to know the terrain. The better you know him, the better you know his word because one day at some point, what you're supposed to do becomes unclear. It becomes thick. It becomes difficult to ascertain. God, what do I do next? What decision do I make? God, I need you to show me what to do. And you might be for a while in that place of uncertainty, in a place of struggle, confusion, or doubt even, trying to make those decisions. But here's the thing. Prior to that moment, you have gotten to know your Savior. You have decided to follow Christ. You know Him. And because you know him, you know the terrain, you know how he behaves, you know what he wants you to do, you know what's consistent with the purpose for your life and the direction he wants you to go. And when you see the green light, you keep going. When you see the red one, you know, pause, take a break. He might stop you along the way, but he will never mislead you. And you're not doing this on your own, no matter how confusing or cloudy it appears to be. If you are following Christ, you are in the right lane, you are going the right direction, you are going exactly where he needs you to go. Because you know him. Because you know him. You know him so you recognize the landmarks along the way. Yes, that's how God behaves. Yes, that's what God wants me to do. And you know it's dangerous to decide to deviate from that. No, I know what to do. I don't need to ask him. I don't need to do his will. I'll do what I want to do. That's when it becomes dangerous. Because you still don't know what to do. You still can't see. You're still confused. The road's still cloudy. But now you're off of your course. You're, you don't recognize the terrain. And it, and it gets pretty bad. You see why following Christ is a game changer? And when we follow Christ and have a relationship with him, it changes everything. Let's go back to this psalm for just a minute. A few minutes I want us to dig into it just a bit and see how it changes everything when you follow Christ. Here's what I mean. It changes everything to follow Jesus when you submit to God's guidance. When you submit to God's guidance. 
Uh, David's psalm is a prayer, and a prayer by its very nature, think about this, is submission. Every time you pray, you are acknowledging the greatness and the majesty of God. You are acknowledging that you are a creature and he is the creator. Every time you pray with humility and sincerity, you are bowing to him in submission. You are crying out, just as David does, you appeal to him because he is your God. Uh, All the language that we read is language of submission, language seeking guidance. Teach me God, show me God. Reveal to me, God, what you want me to do. Uh, That's the posture of a person who receives guidance from the God that they follow, from the Jesus that they know. If you come to Jesus in prideful prayer, no wonder you're confused. If you come to him and say, hey, this is what I want to do. God bless me for what I want to do. No wonder you're confused. Because prayer that connects with God and that says I'm following Christ is prayer of submission. It's humble. At the outset, it's acknowledging who God is as well as who we are. So how does God respond to that? I want you to notice a couple of things that we could just bring out. First, uh, God reveals his truth. David asks for God's truth. Truth is God's way of seeing things. God unveils, God reveals the way he sees things. And the way, and you find that out when you ask him for it. And when you're in the word of God, God is revealing his perspective on your life, on the direction you should go, on what God wants you to do. You're not taking your cues from the world, you're taking your cues from God. And it's and in your submission, you come to him and say, God, it's not about my truth, it's about your truth. It's what you want. And to that person, God reveals his truth. And second, God teaches his ways. God likes to show you in his word what you need to know to make right decisions. God likes to guide you through his word and in your relationship with him. And he will do that. He will teach you his ways. He's not interested in in showing you or teaching you other ways. To do things. No, it's his ways. And when you come to him in prayer and you come to his word, that's what you're asking for. You're asking God to show you his ways, to teach you his ways, to apply his ways to your life. If you're stuck in uncertainty and confusion, ask yourself this question. It's a valid question. When I pray, do I ask God to bless what I want to do, my ways, my truth, or do I humbly seek God's ways and God's truth? Uh, receiving God's guidance means that we are humble before Him. It's a game changer when you submit to God's guidance. When you say, God, I, I, I don't know what to do. So guide me in what to do. But God, also change me to be who you want me to be. That's the big component of God's will is knowing Him, letting Him work in your life, accepting His will, and then following His guidance. That's a game changer. Secondly, following Jesus changes the game, changes everything. When we trust in God's grace, when we trust in God's grace, let's be real honest, occasionally you wonder, God, is this really what you want me to do? Or you wonder when God points out something about your behavior or your conduct, there's something in your life God wants to change. You say, God, I don't know if I can do that. David reminds us that the same grace that saved us 
is the grace that God applies in his love to us to change us. And God is completely consistent in his grace. Verse 5, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me. Notice what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He said, God, I know you saved me, and I know you've forgiven me. That grace I rely on. That grace I depend on. Because I, I'm imperfect. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve God's guidance. I don't deserve God's help. But God is consistent in his grace, and I know that he will apply that grace to me. Now, in this loving relationship David has with his God, this is part of his prayer. He asks God, treat me the way you always have, by your grace. Uh, the phrase, your faithful love, we, we read it twice in this psalm. Some of your Bible translations might have a loving kindness. It's a unique Hebrew word that's only applied to God's love in the Hebrew Bible. And in this case, it's plural. Uh, your faithful loves that you've been showing me all this time. Uh, respond to me, he says to God, in the way you always have. It's a continuing love relationship with God based not on your goodness or your, your, uh, the fact that you deserve it. It's based on the grace of God. And God's grace is always consistent. Just to underscore that, David says, as you have always done through antiquity, you treat me with the same grace that you treated my ancestors who believed in you. For King David, that would be Abraham. That would be the prophets that came before him. That would be Adam and Eve. That would be many, many greats through the ages. For us, it stretches just as far back. See, God is always consistent in his grace. Always consistent in his grace. You can trust his grace. You can trust him to be gracious to you. You can trust him to be forgiving of you when you make mistakes and you admit it and you confess that to him. He is always consistent in his nature and in his grace. God, what if I make a mistake? What if I, I don't understand the word of God? What if I don't know what to do? What if I misapply the Bible? Does God abandon me? Does God punish me? No, God's already saved you. And, and your salvation is, is a constant reminder of the nature of God's grace. If you know that you're saved, that's the benchmark for everything else in your life that God does. It's, it's a constant reminder that before you even knew you were a sinner in need of salvation, the Bible says Christ died on the cross for you. So yeah, you might stumble. You might make a, an errant decision. You're not perfect, but God knows that. So God is consistent in his grace. When you confess your sin, when you return to him, he's consistent. He'll meet you right where you are and help you through this difficult time you're going through as well. He doesn't abandon you to the bog and to the fog. He, he's there. You can trust him. And you can always trust his grace to be consistent. Then third, uh, following Jesus changes the game. When we count on God's goodness. When we count on God's goodness. See, David's thinking about this, and the grace of God is a fact of his nature. 
And out of that grace, we experience his salvation and his redemption. He, he calls us to him, and we trust Christ, and he saves us, and he, he is always gracious to us in every way. But it's also good to remember that God is always good. Because you may wonder about what you're facing. You may think, well, God, I've been following your word. I know that you're gracious. I know that you're, 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 you're leading me. I've been following Jesus. But this is not the situation I thought it would happen. I'm not where I thought I would be. And that's when you need to stop a minute and say, but I count on the nature, the character of God, that God is always good. And his decisions toward me are always good. David says it again in verse 7, because of your goodness, in keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness. This is how God responds to you. This is how he responds to you in all things. He is always good. Now that means sometimes, even in his goodness, he has to discipline us to get us back on track. He has to show us sin in our lives, and we need to confess that sin. And by his grace, he forgives, but it's his nature, his goodness and in that goodness, he responds to you. That's so important to remember when sometimes you wonder if what you're going through. Because from the outside, this may not look very good. So remember, God is always good. God is always good. But he defines goodness by his nature. Not by what we want, but by who he is. And by his nature. All of that is to say you can count on God's loving kindness. As David says, his faithful love, his goodness, his grace. You can trust him and you can count on him that no matter what, he will guide you and he will lead you and he will take care of you. It should be our desire to submit to him. It should be our desire to lay our conduct down before him and say, God, I want to humbly serve you. I want, if I'm asking God to lead me, I also need to be ready to follow. I need to accept what he wants to do in my life. And that, it's humility that does that. So ask yourself that question this morning. Maybe you've been crying out to God, seeking God's guidance. The question is, are you in a right relationship with God in the first place? Because it's in that relationship that he guides you. Occasionally we have the notion that God's will, and you've heard, some of you might have said it. I know I hear it all the time. I've probably said it over the years. I just want to find God's will. You ever said that? I just want to find God's will. We're good for you, but pay attention to the way you're saying it. You're implying that God's will is a thing out there somewhere, and you've lost it. And now you've got to find it. It's a thing. No, it's not. If you know God, you know his will. Parents, you agree with that? All your child needs to do to know your will is ask you. Then, following your will requires submission, right? Same thing with God. So if you're struggling to find God's will, maybe the problem is not God's will. Maybe it's relationship with God through which he shows you his will. You're not following a thing. You're following a person. And following Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. Megan Hill is a Christian writer. She's written several books. If you're familiar with um, the Gospel Coalition, she writes frequently for Gospel Coalition. 
uh, she tells a story of her salvation experience, which she says, in her words, was pretty dull. She grew up in a Presbyterian household, and as far back as she can remember, she trusted Christ. She doesn't know of a specific day or a specific time, and, and, and I'm always one that says, you, you kind of need to nail it down. You need to know. But there are those exceptions, those among us who say, you know, one day I just realized I love Jesus, and I had faith in Christ. And, and she said as a child, that faith was affirmed by her pastor. She went and talked to her pastor about it, and he said, well, everything you're telling me, you're saved. You trusted Christ and repented of your sins. And she said, well, I thought so. So she lived in that, in that love for Jesus, and then she started going to a Christian school. And at the Christian school, they would have people come and give their uh, radical testimonies. Saved out of drug addiction. Saved out of atheism. Saved off the streets and out of homelessness. All important and all good, but she said, I would sit there and I would listen and I would think, that, that's not what happened to me. Am I, am I saved? Am I okay in this? And she said, more to the point, not one time in her whole experience at a Christian school that was anybody ever invited to give a testimony like hers. I just love Jesus. I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't walking the streets. I was never in jail. I didn't rob any stores. Wasn't an atheist that I remember. None of that. And she said, through those years, I would sit there and I would think, you know, my, my testimony is pretty dull. The pastor agrees I'm saved. I believe I'm saved, but it seems like my testimony is pretty dull. You ever felt that kind of thought? Well, I, you know, you meet somebody and their whole testimony is flashbang. You know, it's wow. Then she said when she was 27 years old and had kids, she realized, It's not the testimony that's magnificent. It's the grace of God that's magnificent. She said, there is no such thing as a dull testimony. If my father loves me and sacrifices for me anything like I do for my kids. No, we are all saved the same way. The atheist or the child that grew up in church, when they come to faith in Christ, the Christ, the Jesus they trust, is the Jesus who died on the cross for them. And God raised him from the grave. There is no dull salvation because there is no boring grace. God did that for you. And whatever your background is, whatever your story is, if you're saved, you're saved the same way I am and every person who's saved in this room is saved. There is no boring, dull salvation. There's only the magnificent grace and goodness of Almighty God. Following Jesus changes everything. Believers in Christ here and at home, would this be the day you need to rededicate your life to Christ? Would this be the day you need to say, God, forgive me for trying to do things my way. I want to submit to you. I want to grow in my relationship with you. Forgive me, God, for my prayers being nothing but formalities in my life where I just say, hey God, I'll let you know if I need you. Would this be the day you would say, God, thank you for that magnificent grace. Do what you would do with me. Change me. Shape me. Make me more like Christ. 
And if you're in this room or you're at home and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, He died on the cross for you. And God raised Him from the grave. Why? Because He loves you that much. And His grace is consistent. And you're thinking, well, Pastor Bob, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But Jesus does. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my past. Okay. But Jesus does. And He has promised you that you will, if you will confess your sin, repent of your sin, and trust Christ today, He will forgive you and give you eternal life. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. So I'm going to pray for all of us believers in Christ, and I want to pray with you here or at home. If you've never trusted Christ in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and I want to invite you to pray that to the God in your heart to trust Christ as your Savior today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, around this room and at home, maybe around the kitchen table, living room, sitting in a home office, maybe even in our pajamas in the bedroom watching this service, and realizing, God, that your grace is magnificent. God, forgive us. Forgive us, Father, for where we have traveled on our own, where we have been prideful before you. Forgive us, Father, for not humbling ourselves before you. Father, we know following Christ changes everything. So, God, I pray for us, those of us who know we are believers in Christ, those of us who can roundly give a testimony, that we are followers of Christ. Father, for us, I pray that today, if you're speaking to our hearts, if you're calling us out with urgency, God, that you want to do a work in our lives, Father, we've been holding back, that, that you're showing something in our, uh, to us that we need to confess. Uh, whatever else, God, whatever step of faith, whatever commitment you're showing us, God, I pray today would be the day. We would step out in faith. We would ask your forgiveness. We would make that change you're calling us to make. That when we leave this place, God, we will leave following Christ fully again. And for that one in this room or at home that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, God, how we praise you for your magnificent grace. And I pray today would be the day they would trust Christ and put all their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins, to give them eternal life, to change them today. And with them, I pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. I've tried. Tried to go my own way, God, and I know it's wrong. And Jesus, I believe in you fully and completely. I believe you died on the cross for me and that you're alive today. So my prayer, Lord Jesus, is that you would forgive me of my sin. I trust you as my Savior. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Guide me, direct me from this day forward. I surrender to Christ in faith today will always follow you as my Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us. God, how I pray for all of us that the yearning of our heart would be to follow you, to follow Christ. No matter what you call us to do, no matter where we are in the bog, in the, in the struggle, in the, in, the, in, in the uncertain places, God, that we would follow Christ no matter what. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.